Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank and praise you for his magnificence that we have seen over these last few months. We pray that we might see again how great he is and how worth following he is. We pray that we would respond rightly to him tonight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Six years ago, uh, Callie Rogers won £1.9 million in a UK lottery. The ecstatic 16-year-old spent her winnings on vacations, homes, shopping, friends, even surgery. But today, Rogers is a single mother of two. She works as a maid to sustain her family. She's paying off a number of very significant debts. And she has this to say about her winnings. My life is a shambles, and hopefully, now the money's all gone, I can find some happiness. It's brought me nothing but unhappiness. It's ruined my life. When Lisa Arcand won a million dollars in a scratch lotto, she thought it was a dream come true. She bought a home and some furniture, she took a vacation, and she opened up a restaurant. But now, four years later, Arcand has had to close the restaurant. All her savings are gone. She has big debts. She says, winning the lottery is not all it's cracked up to be. Actually, it's been very depressing. Tears roll down Lara Griffith's face as she tells her story. She won 1.8 million pounds. She says, most people end up worse off in some way. And no one has any sympathy because you won the money instead of earning it. I'm not even back to square one. I'm much worse off than before the win. Susan Bradley runs a financial practice, a financial practice that specialises in um, dealing with people who come suddenly into money. And she says that many, many lottery, lottery winners end up worse off financially than they were to start with. It encourages them to get themselves into significant debt and they end up worse off than before they won the lottery. Uh, wealth counsellor Zivra Burke is more specific. She says that in her experience, roughly one-third of lottery winners find themselves in serious financial trouble or even bankruptcy within five years of winning the lottery. One-third, one in three. Now, I'm no fan of gambling, but it wouldn't be bad to win the lottery, would it? You could use a couple of million dollars, couldn't you? And I could find some very good uses for a couple of million dollars myself. And yet here is the strange truth. Many lottery winners end up worse off than if they'd never won in the first place. As we followed Jesus over these last few months, we've seen him do some amazing things, haven't we? Just like the prophets had said hundreds of years before, Isaiah and Malachi, they, they had promised that when, when God comes to rescue his people, the eyes of the blind will be opened, the, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame will walk, and good news will be preached to the poor. Well, that's exactly what we've seen Jesus doing, isn't it? Exactly what was prophesied. Uh, Jesus is giving sight to the blind, enabling the lame to walk, curing lepers, healing all kinds of diseases, raising the dead, calming storms, preaching the good news of God's coming kingdom. Jesus is unique, he's unparalleled in history, and he's exactly what you should expect when God comes to rescue his people. But not everyone is becoming his disciple. 
Some people are. They're, they're dropping everything to follow Jesus, but not everyone. Last week we saw some of the religious leaders. Jesus didn't agree with their interpretation of God's law, specifically on the Sabbath, do you remember from last week? And uh, he didn't fit into their box of how a religious leader should behave. And so despite all the miracles that they're seeing, they don't only hate him, they've started a plot to kill him. Some people follow Jesus, they they change their lives, change their whole lives for him, they they repent, to use the biblical word. Other people hate Jesus, They, they, they want him dead. But for most people, for the, um, for the crowds that we've seen time and time again, for, for, for most people, they just do nothing, really. It's not like they hate Jesus, they don't hate him, they've got nothing against him. But they don't want to repent either. They don't think Jesus is worth turning their lives upside down for. They're just like ordinary people have been right through the ages, they're just like a nice comfortable, don't hassle me sort of a life. Uh, So these people, they don't do anything about Jesus one way or the other. But a couple of weeks ago we saw that Jesus wasn't satisfied with that. Do you remember he complained about his generation, uh, how they they wouldn't dance, uh, how uh, they wouldn't listen to either John the Baptist or him as they played the repentance tunes. Do you remember that? Jesus said, wisdom is proved right by her actions. You want to respond wisely to me, Jesus says. You've got to act. You've got to repent. And he, and he pronounced God's judgment, do you remember, on those towns, Chorazin, Bethsaida, Capernaum, those towns who'd seen miracle after miracle but were refusing to repent. Well, now here in our next passage, again we see a great miracle and again we see varied responses. So some people bring a man to Jesus. He's possessed by a demon. The physical symptoms of that are he can't see and he can't uh, speak. And once more, in an amazing miracle, Jesus heals him. Exactly, again, a fulfillment of Isaiah 35, a sign that God has come to rescue his people, that the kingdom of heaven has come, and now people are starting to wonder, well, maybe this guy is who he claims to be. Maybe this is the king, the son of David, the Messiah, the king of God's kingdom. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 22. Have a look with me. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? The evidence is right there before them. The blind see, the the mute speak, and the crowd is starting to ask questions. Maybe this guy is who he claims to be. Maybe we do need to do something about it. But the religious leaders, they're at the point where they they don't care about evidence anymore. Jesus has made fools of them in in front of people. He's shamed them. He's disagreed with them. He's opposed them. They hate him now, and, and no amount of evidence is going to convince them anymore. And so with a miracle done right in front of them, they, they come up with another explanation. They say, we must be using the devil's power. Verse 24. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Now, it, it, it's a bit of a silly argument. And Jesus starts off his reply by explaining why this doesn't make any sense. I mean, is Satan really fighting against him? So is Satan driving himself out? If he is, well, stop worrying about him because he's finished. Satan's driving himself out. Verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, 
Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. And every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? Jesus then talks about some of the Pharisees who also drive out demons. And he says, look, if one of your blokes drove out a demon, you'd all be cheering. You'd have him up on the billboards. Look, hooray, look at us. You'd never say he's of Satan if one of your blokes did it. Verse 27. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. Jesus isn't using Satan's power, no way. He is driving out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. That the same Holy Spirit who has anointed him to be God's servant. We saw that back in verse 18. Jesus' miracles are not the work of Satan. No, no, they show the power of the Spirit in his life. They show that God's kingdom has now come. Verse 28. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus says, I'm not in partnership with Satan. No, no way. I am defeating Satan. I'm tying the bloke up, plundering him. Verse 29. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob his house. That's what Jesus is doing, plundering Satan. Okay, Jesus has shown that the Pharisees are wrong. But the thing is, they're not just wrong. They are deliberately wrong obstinately wrong the evidence is clear it's there in front of their eyes but their hearts are hard they are stubbornly refusing to believe and so jesus doesn't just show them to be wrong he warns them he says if you're not with me you're against me you're my enemy and he says that is dangerous that is dangerous dangerous territory because you reject me and you're not just rejecting me You're speaking against the Holy Spirit of God, God's Holy Spirit who has anointed me, God's Holy Spirit by whom I am doing these things. Jesus says, you want to call the work of God's Spirit the work of Satan? You want to blaspheme God's Holy Spirit? You are putting yourself in eternal danger. He says, speak against me if you want to, but you don't just speak against me. You're speaking against God's Holy Spirit, and that is eternally dangerous. Verse 30. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. These Pharisees are in danger of blaspheming God's Holy Spirit in calling the work of the Spirit the work of Satan, they are putting themselves in eternal danger. Their obstinate refusal to believe is putting them in grave, grave danger. But now you can imagine at this point the Pharisees saying, oh, there you go, Jesus. We're, we're just debating with you, just talking it through, offering a suggestion, a bit of cut and thrust. It's all just words. You, you can go easy on the never be forgiven for eternity stuff. Um, there's a lovely Italian saying, si fa per dire. Si fa per dire. It means something like, I'm just saying it. You don't need to get all upset. You don't need to do anything about it. I'm not asking for any action. I'm just having my say here. And with these Pharisees, they are just speaking. 
All they're doing is saying that Jesus is using Satan's power. It's not like they're war criminals or mass murderers or something like that. You, you wouldn't think Jesus would get so upset about words. You wouldn't think that words could cause so much trouble. But Jesus, Jesus goes on to say that words are very important. What you say, it shows what is in your heart. The evil things that come out of your mouth show the evil that is inside you. And on judgment day, you will have to give account Words matter. Verse 33. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognised by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that men will have to give account on the day of judgment for every careless word they've spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted and by your words you'll be condemned. And Jesus is right, isn't he? That's that's fair enough. Words do matter, don't they? What you say, it does show what's in your heart. It does show what you are thinking, what you are feeling. And words can have a profound impact. I mean, we say, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. But why do we say it? Because words hurt. Words do matter. And on Judgment Day, it's only right that we should have to give account for our words. It's scary, don't you reckon? But it's right. Okay, so these Pharisees, they're not just wrong. Their stubborn refusal to accept the evidence, their hatred and prejudice against Jesus, it's putting them in eternal danger. And so Jesus doesn't just argue with them, he warns them. So Jesus has now given sign after sign after sign. I mean, that, that last week we saw the, the miracle right there in the synagogue. And, and again, another clear miracle, as well as all the other miracles that we've seen, miracle after miracle after miracle, so much so that the Pharisees can't even deny that he does miracles. They have to make up ridiculous explanations like the devil is driving himself out of people. And yet now, in the next story, they have the hide to ask Jesus for another sign. They've just said you're doing signs by the power of Satan, and now they say, well, so give us another one. Verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. As you can imagine, Jesus isn't impressed. He says they will get no sign. And now notice Jesus doesn't just talk about the Pharisees here. He's not just talking about the people who hate him. He he broadens it. He talks about his whole generation. His generation who, despite all the evidence, despite all the miracles, are for the most part doing nothing. They don't hate him, but they're not repenting either. Jesus says, the only sign you'll get is my death and resurrection, and he calls that the sign of Jonah. You'll see why, verse 39. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And Jesus now goes on to talk about how hopeless his generation is at repenting. They stubbornly refuse to repent. He says, look back in the Old Testament, even the pagans in the Old Testament were better repenters than you. Uh, Even the capital of the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh, the Ninevites, uh, not the the 
not the people of Nivea, as uh, somebody read this morning. It's not the guys with the, you know, their faces look so young. No, no, it's not, it's not them at all. It, it's, it's, it's Nineveh. It's the centre of the, the enemies of God, the people who are killing and, 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 and taking Israel into exile. Even those pagans, when Jonah came, they repented. Jesus says, I'm bigger and better than Jonah, but you guys don't repent. Or even the Queen of the South, the Queen of Sheba, this woman from who knows where, or what, what religion, who knows, she came all the way across the world to see Solomon. Jesus says, well, I'm bigger and better than Solomon, but you, my generation, will not repent. And so he says, you're going to face condemnation. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh, not Nivea, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is saying, when it comes to repentance, you are hopeless. And now he uses a rather strange illustration. He talks about a man who has a demon driven out of him. But then more demons come into him and he ends up worse off than he was in the first place. Verse 43. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. (coughs) And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. What do you reckon Jesus means here? What's the the point of this illustration? It's it's a bit of a strange one, isn't it? Um, Well, what can we see about it? We can see that it's about his generation, isn't it? That's what Jesus says. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. Um, Somehow his generation, the sentence before, will find that their final condition is worse than the first. So they'll be worse off than they were before. What's going on? I think it works a bit like this, this illustration. So Jesus' generation is the man in the illustration. Um, having one demon driven out, that is like Jesus coming. Jesus comes to set them free. He comes to do what he's just done, drive out Satan, tie him up and, and plunder him. Jesus has come to do them good. But if they refuse to repent, if they continue to be the hopeless repenters that they are, then the point is they will be worse off than if Jesus had never come. The fact that Jesus has come is a good thing for them, but it increases their responsibility. If they reject Jesus now that they know, now that they've seen the miracles, it'll be like going from one demon to eight demons. Now that they know about Jesus, if they refuse to repent, they'll heap even more judgment onto themselves. They'll be worse off than if he'd never come at all. It's a bit like what we were talking about at the beginning. People who win the lottery, but then they end up worse off than they were to start with. It is great that Jesus has come, like winning the lottery. But if you refuse to repent, you will end up worse off than if you'd never heard of him at all. In fact, you will wish you had never, ever heard of him if you know his claims and refuse him. That's tough stuff, isn't it? It is tough stuff. But before we head into the parables next week, Matthew has one more little story for us. A story that shows the benefits 
of repenting, the benefits of putting your trust in Jesus, the benefits of becoming his disciple. Jesus says that his disciples become his family. His disciples become his family. Verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Just think about that for a second. If you are Jesus' disciple, you become his family. That, that's a pretty intimate image, don't you think? Uh, my family, they can live in my house. They can sleep in my beds. I mean, I mean if you show up to my place tonight and uh, walk in the door and curl up in one of the beds for a sleep, I will think that that is weird but not for my family. My family will eat my food. If you come over to my place now and show up at the front door and walk in and open up the fridge and help yourself, I will think that's strange. Not for my family. If you come over to my place and walk in and plop yourself down on the couch and turn on the TV, I'll be surprised. Not for my family, although my brother did it the other day and I was slightly surprised. But his family, he can do it. If I'm sitting at the dinner table and you come and sit on my lap, I'll be concerned. <laughs> uh, if you call me honey, or, or dad, or son, uh, I'll assume you're talking to someone else. Not if my family does it. You see, this is an intimate relationship we are talking about here a relationship of love a relationship of sharing that is yours if you're a disciple of Jesus you're in the family it's like come into the kingdom open up the fridge help yourself pop yourself down on the couch turn on oh, that is pretty special don't you reckon I mean who knows what it's going to mean into eternity in God's kingdom that we are not just in the kingdom of Jesus but we are in the family of Jesus. What is that going to mean in eternity? It's really special, don't you reckon? All right. Uh, can you see what we've covered today? So Jesus, um, he heals that uh, demon-possessed, blind and mute man. The crowds start to ask, is this the Messiah? The Pharisees say, no way, he's of the devil. Jesus shows they're wrong. He warns them. Uh, and then the Pharisees want another sign. Jesus says, no way. And then he warns them again and his whole generation. If you won't repent, you'll end up worse off than if I'd never come. And then finally, this last story, those who do put their trust in Jesus become his family. If you look at the structure of it, you start with a story of Jesus setting the demoniac free, able to see, able to speak. And we finish with Jesus' disciples becoming his family. And then in the middle, we've got the Pharisees who say that he's of, 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 of Satan and we've got the Pharisees and his generation who refuse to repent. If you look at the structure, you see that this is a very stark contrast. Can you see that? It's a very stark contrast. Jesus' kingdom, uh, it is like winning some kind of eternal lottery. 
freed from the clutches of Satan. No more sickness or death in the kingdom of God. Our eyes will be opened to really see. Our our tongues will be loosed to praise God forever. We will be in, in the very family of Jesus. But if we reject Jesus, if we refuse to repent, if we won't accept him as king, we're in profound danger. Judgment Day is going to come and we're going to have to give account for everything we've done, even everything we've said. And without Jesus, there will be no forgiveness in this age or in the age to come. Without Jesus, we look forward to nothing but but judgment and spiritual bankruptcy. There's a stark contrast, isn't it? And did you notice, there is no neutral ground. There's no fence to sit on in the middle. If you do nothing, then you are not in Jesus' kingdom. If you make no decision, then that is a decision against Jesus. As Jesus says here, he who is not with me is against me. Friends, the application of this to us is very obvious, isn't it? If I can use that image of of, of the carrot and stick that you try to move the donkey with, the carrot here is so delicious. The benefits of relying on Jesus are so brilliant. The stick is so so dreadful. If we refuse to to, to repent, what a terrible future is ours. The, The stakes are so high. The contrast is so stark. Friend, please, please do not reject Jesus. And please don't do nothing. Please don't just think you can put it off to another day or or ignore it Jesus demands that we act he demands that we stop running life our way that we accept him as king that we become his disciples that we ask him to forgive us and set us free friends the benefits are enormous the 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 consequences are dire we really really must repent and put our faith in Jesus let's pray Our Father and our God, we confess that we are sinners who have never perfectly loved you. We are people who in our words and in our actions and thoughts have never loved you as you deserve and haven't loved our neighbours as ourselves. We are people who don't want to stand before you on Judgment Day unforgiven. Father, we thank you so much that Jesus has come. Would you please help us by the power of your spirit to, to repent, to stop running life our way, to submit to Jesus as king, to trust in his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. Please make us Jesus' disciples. Welcome us into your family, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.